welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Abby Tabor. Abby is a physiotherapist and pain researcher out of Bristol, England. Abby is a prolific researcher and is particularly interested in a concept called predictive processing or active inference. The brain has become known as a prediction machine, constantly making best guesses of sensations arising from the periphery to produce various experiences. Can this apply to pain as well? Stay tuned for Abby's perspective. It's one of my favorite conversations to date. This conversation was originally recorded in August 2020 from a YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation and for your information, for the first time in two years, I am running my one day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne in May and June 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants for each workshop. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Abby Tabor. Hi, Abby. Thank you very much for joining me for a conversation about something that is, I think should be of great interest to physiotherapists. So thank you. Hi, Jared. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be chatting to you. So yeah, cheers for the invite. No worries. We've all got a lot of time in at the moment with this, <laughs> with this pandemic, which we won't speak too much about. So these Zoom conversations have come in uh, good value for me. So I guess where I want to start is, is uh, who are you? What's, what's your background? We just discussed uh, a moment ago that you were a physio, which I had no idea about. So we, we do have a little bit in common, but you've since progressed into uh, an illustrious research career. So give me a bit about you and your background. Yeah, so um, yeah, as you say, like I, I started off working as a physio um, in London and that does seem like a bit of a, a distant memory now, but I, I'm, I sort of went and did a PhD, um, which was very um, sort of, well, it was, it was great for me. I worked with Lorimer Mosley, Nick Thacker. Um, I spent some time in South Australia and yeah, that kind of started me on the uh, research route. Really, I came back to the UK, and and since then I've I've kind of been working in academia. So I'm currently a lecturer um, in rehabilitation at the University of Bath. Um, I'm living in Bristol. And yeah, my work is really trying to look at particularly sort of theoretical models and how they apply to understanding the transition from acute experience to a persistent one um and yeah basically trying to get a grip on, on how we understand those those potential mechanisms from a theoretical perspective so why did you why did you move from a promising physiotherapy career to a career in research did you have a, an existential crisis or, or what <laughs> yeah probably something like that um i think um i i probably can blame Lorimer for that actually um i I was a slightly disillusioned physio when I went to listen to him talk at Queen Mary's University and, and that was a bit of a, a game changer to me. It sort of opened up the idea of, of, of what it was to be a physio um, and, and how you could be a physio and ask questions and how those questions can lead to a deep, dark world of research. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I blame Lorimer. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's guilty for a number of uh, career shifts there. What do you mean physios can ask questions? We can't ask questions. We just have to stick with tradition and dogma and do it just because of the way it's been done, right? That's what that's what orthopedic <laughs> surgeons do. Um, but no, you're right. Isn't isn't it, isn't it good now where the, the concept of evidence based practice and evidence based medicine, which which is funny, it's been around for obviously decades, um, but I feel like it's really taken off over the last. Uh, 10 to 15 years, probably with the advent. I, th I think social media has been powerful here in actually disseminating a lot of this stuff and obviously the internet and blah, 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 blah. blah. But I, I really feel like physio is at a, at a juncture, at a really sort of critical point where we're all starting to ask questions and, and often 
and I'm I'm involved in, in teaching at university as well, and we're still I'm not going to say too much, but we we still teach things that perhaps may have been updated a little bit, you know, over time, and and I, I sort of struggle with that. There's a bit of a tension in between. How much do you actually teach? to students in terms of how much uncertainty do you give them because a lot of stuff is uncertain or do you just say I'll oh, do this special test for the shoulder and that will reveal a pathoanatomic diagnosis you know so there's kind of that pull between okay we need to ask questions but but when do you ask them and at what point in your career or do you just give it a couple of years after you practice for a bit I don't know obviously you teach as well what do you what do you think there because we do have to sort of have some sort of answers for students don't we yeah, it's an uncomfortable rub, I guess, of having a sort of a certain amount of, of definite that enables students and practitioners to have a um, a platform from from which to practice, and and I think that is important. Um, I think it's you know, in some of the teaching that I'm involved with is within a master's physiotherapy program, and a lot of that onus is is on how how do we feel comfortable with that discomfort of of like actually our practice isn't it doesn't have to be pinned to a certain to a certain flag and actually more the skill is not necessarily in or wholly in the technique but but in in the way that we apply that and the questions that we ask of of, of ourselves as we apply our techniques um and remaining open that there are multiple ways to achieve different outcomes absolutely so exactly this is and this is something that uh of just submitted a paper on it's the mechanisms of an intervention aren't probably what you think they're doing. So if you apply a strengthening exercise to the shoulder or to the quadricep, whatever you want, that person's pain can become ameliorated even if their strength doesn't increase. So what's the mechanism underlying applying resistance? You know what I mean? So there's this multifactorial interaction between how we think something works and how it does work. Yeah, I think that's the reality that we face in, in healthcare, though, when you're when you're dealing with people, these complex entities in an even more complex world, then your intervention is, is just a small part of a, a much bigger picture. And it has the ability to spawn so many different interactions that can have positive and negative effects. And I think being open to the idea that that, that is, is the case um, mm. is yet part of the but this, The important thing is, I think, is that we're not. We're not, I don't think we're taught enough that, so our clinical reasoning is still embedded in this biomedical model, 100%. And that, that is what I, I believe pretty much every single university course of physiotherapy teaches. That's why you learn special tests. That's why you learn testing active range of motion with a goniometer. You know, that's, that's the cause of the pain because that's two degrees out versus the other side or a scapular dyskinesis, which is my area of interest. But and then, and then, and then, a couple of years out, we start hearing from Lorimer Mosley, or we start hearing from Peter O'Sullivan, or other important voices in the field. And we're like, well, how does that equate with my deeply biomedical understanding of things? You know, so I do think we can be better at at, at sort of teaching students, hey, this this is probably not too far wrong. You can, if somebody comes in with shoulder pain and it hurts when they do that, and they're a certain age group and they fell over the day before algorithmically statistically speaking there's a chance that they probably have a rotator cuff tear or something like that but when we speak about pain or when we speak about uh other more complex perceptual things as, as you were saying before we have to be we have to think outside of a pure biomedical dualist model so i imagine like how do you go in your how do you go so in your first person experience how do you go explaining that to a bright-eyed student who wants to know <laughs> what what a positive test for for this means for a Hawkins Kennedy, for example, in the shoulder. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just come back to the the previous point about sort of teaching within physio school. Mm -hmm. I, th I think like I was in some ways lucky to have um, uh, an education in, in physio that was, as you describe, largely biomedical. But in midway through that, we had this sort of this guy come in and talk about this, what, what seemed to us as this completely radical and off the wall. And that guy was Mick Thacker. And he kind of just introduced this whole sort of different world of understanding what pain constitutes. Um, and it was completely at odds with most of the, the rest of the teaching. And it kind of stuck with me that we'd had 
and, and, and then going into practice after that, you're dealing with patients that that their number one sort of concern is their is their pain often. And we had two lectures throughout the entirety of my undergraduate degree that focused on understanding what pain actually was. And we spent whole semesters understanding manual handling of, of, the, of the shoulder. So it's kind of that, how, how, do, we, how do we reconcile that? Um, and I think you know, the, the question you asked is a, is a poignant one. It's one that I'm, I'm trying to address within the way that we structure our course, actually, rather than sort of maybe at the individual level. And, and I'm trying to structure the way in which our units are outlined. So this is maybe a bit, a bit boring and, and not so practical on a one-to-one -one level, but the, the idea that we can approach problems, whether they are traditionally bio, biomedical. And your example there is, well, this is kind of like a clear-cut biomedical model. It works for that. Um, but I guess part of what we're trying to do is, you know, we do have models that still accommodate the idea that there is a sort of a, a driving factor that is not wholly sort of at the at the psychological level or the social level, and 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 really integrating the idea that we can accommodate wholly sort of injury based um, experiences of pain in the same model as as as, as pain experience that seems wholly detached from from injury. So, I think it's. It's trying to approach it from a framework that gives us gives us that leverage rather than having to jump between uh, uh, like this this biomedical model to biopsychosocial. How, how do we reconcile the two uh, un, under a model that get, that gives us um, strength as a pra practitioner? Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get to what that what that model might be in a moment. But before we get into the to the nitty gritty of it all, I have to ask you a ridiculous question: What book are you reading at the moment, and or what TV series are you watching? Yeah, so well, I, like these these questions, I'm always like, I, I see them <laughs> online. I'm like, God, I, I really have, I, I'm actually reading a book. If I'm <laughs> Just flick one open. I am reading a book, although it's it's something that I've been trying to digest for a long time, and it's um it's called Sitopia by um, Carolyn Steele, and it's just it's, it's completely outside of the work that I do, which is nice to escape, but it's also something that's really interesting from a just a, a world perspective, I, I guess. Karen Steele's an architect and she's she's writing about how food is really the centre of, of everything, how we experience the world from food chains all the way to our, our social social lives and how that has become wholly detached from how we um, get our food. So that detachment is is crucial in, in socioeconomic divides in people as, as well as our health. Um, that's still pretty dense stuff, though. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, that's, that's... it doesn't take so long to get through it. I've been reading it for about six months. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm reading a book uh, called Behave by Robert Sapolsky at the moment. It's taken me 18 months now since I first opened it. And it's, wow. it's 800 pages, so, so just don't judge me. But, um, man, <laughs> I'm going to reread every page a number of times. So it's not it's not good night time. Well, actually, it does put me to sleep pretty quickly. Okay, anyway, so... So thank you for revealing that. I think that just adds a little bit of personality to these somewhat boring conversations. So let's get into the, the good stuff, the stuff that I've, I came, I've come across or I've known you for. I've read a lot of your work and it mostly has to do with these terms. And I'm going to throw a few terms out there. Active inference, Bayesian inference, predictive processing, the Bayesian brain, blah, 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 blah. Predictive processing stands out because that's, uh, that's something that has really taken off um, in the field of physiotherapy, probably only within the last five to 10 years. I know it's been around a lot longer in other disciplines, but Mick Thacker is a leading voice in uh, predictive processing at the moment. I, I know you've worked with him as well. So could you just sort of briefly describe predictive processing or active inference, if you like, and how the two may relate? And how does it apply to pain specifically? Yeah, so I guess a good starting point, because I think, you know, we're at a point where these terms are, it's a bit like a forest trying to navigate through understanding what these different terms mean and, and how they've been taken in different research directions, actually, and it's sort of, you know, starting with predictive processing, this it's really is a, a framework that but it has its basis, and all of all of these sort of terms that you've you've mentioned, whether it's predictive coding, um, predictive processing, sort of active inference, are sort of grounded in a sort of statistical inference model, um, namely Bayesian inferences, which is essentially trying to describe probability um, and, and and how probability relates to um, all the way up to experience. Um, and so, this is a bit of a starting point. 
in my case, see with, with Lorimer when I was trying to describe how the experience of pain in, in some of his work that he'd done previously can, can shift given different contexts, whether it's um, a different visual piece of information, different auditory cue. How, how does the experience of pain, how is that reshaped given the fact that we have access to more information? And the sort of predictive processing framework really borrows from other perceptual inferences, so largely vision um, and how people make sense of a world that is um, uncertain. So the pieces of information that we have access to are uncertain and we try and integrate pieces of information to increase the certainty with which we kind of know what's what's happening. There's a sort of important inversion in that process whereby the, those models of, of inference are really about not passively receiving stimuli, but actively seeking in, information in order to make sense or try and make sense of what has caused the sensory piece of information um, to, to sort of be inferred in that way. So it's kind of a, it's a way of accommodating this element of uncertainty in our experiences. Our experiences are, are when we when we experience them, are, are, are very certain. We, we know we're experiencing pain with 100% certainty. Um, what this inference process tries to um, under, underline that with is the idea that all perceptual experiences are based on incomplete information, and we're doing our best to make sense of that. So this extends to... All of our perceptions, this extends to vision, this extends to hearing, this extends to whatever else. Yeah, so we, we can we can apply this this framework and it has been largely applied outside of the world of, of pain, where by we, we try and understand you know how how we basically make sense of a world. Why why is the world such a certain place for us? in the sense that actually we're, we're constantly dealing with information that isn't isn't complete about the world. We, we kind of, we have to almost fill in the blanks with, with information from different sources in order to have that, that, that sort of coherent idea of what our body is uh, and what our, what our world is. Yeah, and that's uh, the, the, what, what our sort of, the vision is the one that, that is interesting to me because how the hell do we formulate vision based on photons hitting our retina, you know, or how, how, how do we formulate sounds, distinct sounds that we know out of vibrations in your, in your ear? It's, it's a crazy thing to think about, right? Yeah. And that, that process, you know, in, in historically, it's been considered sort of in a, in a modular way where you kind of have this transfer of information in, 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 in separate um, sort of vessels so that they're kept separate but what we know more about our experience is that they're wholly multi-sensory and we integrate information to have a better idea about what what's go, going on and so how does and how do we then apply this to pain specifically or how so firstly how do you think about pain what's your what's your TED talk on pain and then how does predictive processing uh, become integrated with or how does it explain pain yeah, I, th I think. I mean, this is this is ongoing for me. I think. I think there are no. Um, I, I, this is something that I toy with on a on a daily basis, trying to kind of adequately um, either de define pain or, or understand pain from a from this framework. I think it's an ongoing process for me. The the key elements to it, I think that that the framework helped draw out, and really this is appealing more to active inference than sort of predictive processing in many ways um, is that there is a blurring of the boundary between perception and action under these these frameworks they they essentially work together in order to attempt to resolve discrepancies that we might encounter and from that perspective if i come back to, to pain the experience of pain sort of sits between it's sort of between this boundary of perception and action and I like to think about it as something that is something that we do in in a process that that aims to protect ourself from future harm and I think those two things are really important that come out of the this, this predictive framework one that we have something that is not wholly perceptual or wholly an, an output of the current state of affairs but rather something that is 
orientated towards the future so that we are attempting to protect ourselves from future harm rather than the current state. Um, the current state informs it, but we're protecting from, from current harm. And, and that really is about action in the future. Um, so pain is wholly tied to this action um, within, within the future realm. Yeah. So pain is, pain is, it's not just something that happens to us. It's not a bottom-up experience. It's not, perhaps it's not a passive experience. It's something that's sort of embedded within action and prompts us to perhaps do something or safety-seeking behavior or to stop that happening again in the future. Is that, is that the crux of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think probably summarised better than than I did. This this idea that that pain is something that we we do, we experience in order to prevent future harm. This is like this this change in action in order to maintain or, or, or resolve bodily integrity. Awesome. So that has a lot of sort of implications for physiotherapy practice. I think where we, that's how we need to conceptualize pain and we need to sort of understand why someone who has a sore knee doesn't want to do a squat, you know, because at the very granular level that is going against what their system is telling them to do, right? So we need to come at it from a, from a different sort of way. And then we also need to not further sensitize that fear perhaps of you can't squat below 90 degrees, otherwise you're going to squash your meniscus and you're going to tear it, you know? So that, so I think for having an understanding of pain in that manner really will directly inform our practice, even just based based on that definition without even going any further into it. So thank you. That's that's a really cool way of thinking about it. Um, no, no, just yeah, it's a, the idea of that definition is, is trying to be helpful. Something that, that that is evolving in in my mind, and and yeah, like like you say, trying to um, team that with with the way that we think about pain and, and shifting that in terms of actually if someone's inferring that the situation that they're put in is threatening then their interpretation of that situation situation is going to be very different to somebody who who isn't yeah 100 percent, and that will that will sort of dictate the progression of their symptoms and how we need to interact with them as well so this is the individual individuality of pain right and i think we're going to speak about this a bit later on where pain can get stuck in some again to, to borrow one of your terms so if we just sort of linger with uh, predictive processing uh, for a little bit longer, what's so what are the constituent components of predictive processing? What's a prediction error? What happens when a prediction error arises? Uh, what are what's the what's the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, so I guess breaking it breaking it down, predictive processing is uh, constitutes this, this idea that we generate predictions of the consequences of our actions. So it might be proprioceptive predictions in terms of where our body is in space um, or where it will be in space if we conduct a particular action like reaching for a cup. Um, it, it also constitutes predictions about the, sen- the other sensations associated with that. So the visual input of where our arm will be, um, the tactile sensations associated with, with the reach, those sorts of things. So we sort of have these, these predictions about how our body will behave when we act. Um, the prediction error that you talk about in predictive processing is, is sort of the discrepancy between those predictions that we, we hold and what actually occurs. Um, and so you have this sort of feedback in, in, the, in the sense that when you do reach the cup, there are, there are pieces of information that indicate where your arm is in space. And the prediction error is basically the discrepancy between what you predicted and where, where the arm is as it, as it reaches. Um, and you're constantly sort of up, updating that the process of, of in predictive processing is that you're constantly updating that prediction potentially on one side. So say that the cup is moved or your arm is jogged, you're updating where the arm is in space and, and reconciling that prediction error. So the, the, the information that's coming from the bottom up is, is, is more um, matched to the predictions. The other side of um, the, the sort of coin, if you like, um, in reconciling prediction error is, is altering your action. So it could be that you, you change the way that you act in order to meet the expectations of your, your prediction. So there's sort of two different ways in which prediction error is, is resolved. And the idea under predictive processing is that your aim is to minimize 
prediction error in order to pursue sort of long-term um, coherent behavior in an environment. So you become better essentially at predicting how you will um, interact with your environment and the, the reduction in, in prediction error or in, in active inference long-term um, surprise or free energy. The interesting that you mentioned free energy right at the end there. I was just listening to something um, by Carl Friston and I'm going to have to listen to that about a million times. But anyway, so um, if we talk, so if I just try and encapsulate what you said, so we have a prediction or we have a generative model of how we think something is to pan out or, or what are the consequences of our sensations, for example. And then we're constantly comparing that to sensory information or, or sort of bottom-up information that we're constantly receiving. So as you said, proprioceptive, interoceptive and extraoceptive. Is that yeah, that's it. And I guess the other point is that this this happens across a sort of a, a neural hierarchy, if you will. So it could be that, that these are very quickly resolved in terms of you know reflex action. So at the, the, the spinal cord level, it could be that it, it's propagated higher up the hierarchy, where these prediction errors are having to be resolved with more high high level sort of schemes. So updating the predictions of of how our body moves, and this is something that's an ongoing learning process. Um, and it happens as we learn a new skill, um, just as it happens as, as we injure ourselves and have to better accommodate what, what the body is, is capable of. Um, so all of, these, all of these prediction errors, they don't, just to clear this up for everyone, they, they don't reach consciousness, do they? You haven't got this. A prediction error is a, is, a, is, a, is a term that essentially describes how in, information is passed within the nervous system it's not something that you would consciously be aware of um, it's something that's that's part of um, a framework that helps to describe how information may or may not be passed through um, our, our system essentially yeah cool okay so i think that explains a, a prediction error and then there's two ways that we can actually reconcile perhaps a prediction error we can either update our model or we can act on the environment to change the, the sensation or the, the stimulus, is that, is that correct? That's it. So you've got sort of two sides of the same coin where you're going, yep, do I, um, do I need to update my model of, of how my body behaves in a certain context? And that constitutes learning. Um, or do I change my behaviour to better reflect my prediction within this environment? And you could give an example of sort of walking down a cobbled street at night where your your behavior usually walking down that street would be to just power on through and get get home but given that the low light and there are co cobbles you're having to update your behavior in order in order to better navigate um uh, an environment that's giving you lots of other sensory inf information so a crude example i guess it's worth mentioning at this point that a key element of that is um, a part of the framework is, is known as precision weighting. Uh, and this concept of precision weighting is, is crucial to understanding how information is passed through the hierarchy um, and how it is used to update certain, to update the generative model and, and, and the predictions that we then make go in, in the future. Um, and that sort of precision it can be talked about sort of assigned to information um, and that may be information that, that is particularly salient in a particular environment um, so given the example of walking down a dark street suddenly vision which is usually relatively pre precise and, and, and therefore carries a good deal of weight through the hierarchy um, becomes less reliable and so your system tries to adjust for that increasing the precision associated with say the proprioceptive information of the ankle joint for example so, so you're knowing where your body is in in space and that's informing um perhaps greater and, and, and yeah that's just just one example yeah no that's the, the concept of precision i think we're going to get to uh, a little bit as well when it applies to to pain and so how some signals or some information reaching the brain can be given additional weighting over other competing uh, stimuli, either in the environment or in the in the body itself. Maybe this is a good time to touch on that. So, so what what what's the what's the relationship between precision of a signal and perhaps the development of persistent pain or a persistent pain presentation? What what relevance does the precision of a signal have there, and how may that actually impact 
a physiotherapist clinical practice. Okay, so <laughs> those are two pretty relatively um, whoppers of, of questions, but I'll, I'll try and the, the first bit of that talking about how precision might lead to um, persistence and a, a sort of stickiness um, in experience. And and you say that you borrow my term, and I'm borrow, borrowing Chris Eccleston's term, actually, so he, he's thanks for that. But, but um, the, the idea that we have this precision in order to sort of attune to relevant information, so in, information is not just sort of um, received or, or sought, in, in equal measure, we, we are able to attune given the different environments so that most relevant information is, is given greater gain. And this is a wholly adaptive process and it allows us to be very efficient in our environment, taking information that matters to us most in line with our desires and goals and using it to drive and and, and um, help co coherent behaviour. What I'm posing or what, what we're posing under the sort of predictive processing or active inference framework is that this, this sort of model and the, and the way that we navigate the world in this way, whilst adaptive and efficient, can, can be somewhat, it can be a little bit vulnerable when it comes to particular interactions that happen, either very, very serious interactions or repetitive interactions in in your life, and I guess what this speaks to is having a prediction that your body is under threat. For example, so this might be a sort of the integrity of your body threatened through injury. It might be threat within the external environment. It drives defensive behaviour, and that is part of an adaptive process that enables us to either recover or avoid that threat. However, this is a very salient position to be in. We we want to ensure that we don't venture out when we are potentially threatened. So we hold this position. And something that we were talking about beforehand is that there is this trade-off then as to when we start exploring again. And for most people, this is quite a sort of intuitive process of, okay, say that I've perhaps rolled on my ankle and my initial reaction is to withdraw my foot and sort of hop around for a little bit and ensuring that I'm not creating future damage by weight bearing on it. And then gradually over time, we'll start wiggling our ankle and start to get exploring the concept of well, what's going on in my body and how does that react to the world? But as you say, in, in some people, that sort of high, highly precise prediction of, of sort of threat or loss of bodily integrity doesn't seem to kind of it's never overridden um, and potentially becomes stuck and the sort of difficulty in that situation is that we have a system that's highly adaptive to um, to allow that to continue um, it almost enters this vicious cycle of if we're predicting that um, potentially there's a threat to our bodily integrity we are more likely to seek information that kind of confirms that or assign precision to information that potentially confirms that. So we are caught within this cycle of reinforcing the prediction because we have access to information that, that might um, confirm. And we are also downregulating information that might serve to override or alter that prediction. Um, in those precision terms, we're assigning high precision to information that's relevant to potential threat, whether that be seeing a staircase ahead of us. And that's something that we're going to have to climb with an ankle that we feel is, is not um, able to um, accommodate that. It might be the proprioceptive information associated with where the ankle is in space. It might be ongoing nociceptive cues that tell us about the, the, the ankle as well. So all of these sort of multisensory cues. Um, are being assigned highly precise, um, or is, is assigned high precision um, and informing our prediction of threat and continuing that prediction, um, rather than opening up and broadening our idea of, of what's constituting what, what the ankle is doing and what our body's doing and more broadly what the environment's doing, we're sort of ignoring or downregulating that, that sort of other multisensory information. Right, great job. So, Sorry, that, was, um, that was slightly... <laughs> I'll try and I'll try and digest that. So the the thing that really stood out there for me was this decoupling of the experience of pain and perhaps the sensory input, or in, if we're going to talk about pain nociception. So this 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 prediction or this hypothesis or this model of pain can 
can persist and that becomes can become quite removed from the actual nociceptive information perhaps which it may or may not even be experiencing it may it may still be a little bit of nociceptive activity but it's not certainly it shouldn't that that that, that relationship seems quite disparate so yeah. so that that is because of uh, this precision um, aspect where perhaps that person for whatever reason and there might be some psychological factors at play there or some socio-cultural factors as well uh, gives high precision input from only the aspects of their system that confirm their prediction to minimize their prediction error is this is that at all and that's, that's a really good point i think um you know to, to broaden this idea that we we not only have this capacity to detach from this sort of stimulus response notion of, of experience within this model, but also to broaden it to this, this concept of, okay, what have previously been considered highly psychological factors such as anxiety and catastrophizing, how that plays a role in, in the underlying physiology of, of um, the, the body, whether in injury or not in injury, and the broader sociocultural aspects of the sort of the context of our experiences of pain, and that can speak to our, our sort of individual history as well as our evolutionary history over time. Um, and it could be, you know, part of this predictive model um, is informed by the past. And that could be the past of the individual, so particular circumstances that they found themselves in and how that has, has left them, as well as our evolutionary past in terms of our, our underlying phenotypes, our expectations of, of our experiences and, and what they what purpose they serve. Um, so it helps to yeah, broaden out the concept of, of pain decoupling as you say from this idea of, of injury and actually thinking about putting it within a much much bigger context of experience um, that is not just linked to the moment, but is um, uniquely informed by the past, relevant to the, the present, and then orientated towards the future. That's awesome. So uh, I think, and we, we talked, talked about this a moment ago, and I think that really encapsulates everything within the biopsychosocial model that we're all trying to practice and apply, but which mostly gets divided into biological versus psychosocial. And I think this is where I'm attracted to predictive processing because I think it within the model itself, you, you almost can't decouple any aspect of that. It's all intrinsically connected to it. So I think yes. this is where predictive processing should have some value and, and utility uh, for physiotherapists. Do you agree with that? Yeah, completely. I, I think even, and, and this is something that we discussed as, as well, even at the descriptive level of predictive processing i think it gives us a, a lot of we mentioned platform before is this sort of like a, a certain element of certainty of, as to how to describe these things fitting together um, without having to um, separate them into their sort of modules um, and then somewhat clumsily overlapping them and clunking them back together again i think from the predictive processing perspective all of this stuff has evolved together over time and, and in order to make sense of it we, we can't separate each aspect and treat each aspect of it as a single entity um, it's it's about trying to use this framework as, as, a, as a as a sort of a descriptor that enables us to treat them as um yeah, completely coupled um, throughout and so I'm going to try and relate this to, to physiotherapy as, as, as best I can. So if we have a, a sort of real world example, perhaps, where I'm going to do the shoulder because that's, that's what this is all about. So if you, if you abduct your shoulder to 90 degrees, that's a painful arc sign that has historically meant subacromial impingement or subacromial bursitis or some sort of rotator cuff pathology is causing pain there. How I'm trying to think about it, a little bit is how can predictive processing be applied to that that movement and what i've experimented with a little bit is altering the position so you can do it in sideline position and that that movement may get less probably because you are reducing the load uh, going through the shoulder just with the interaction with gravity and you're changing the context a little bit as well so so the brain may not have a precise uh, model of that particular movement in that position perhaps uh, or you, there's a number of other ways in which you can manipulate any number of internal or external variables to change the, the perception or the experience of pain there. Yeah. So, so that has historically been looked at as that's expectancy violation, 
right? So that and that's more in this, I don't even know what model, that's kind of within graded exposure, I, I guess, where you, ha you try and violate somebody's expectations in order to maximize learning. I think predictive processing captures that as well. And this is, again, why I'm so drawn to it, because it captures psychosocial elements, biological gnosis of developments, and it also captures this sort of um, graded exposure, expectancy violation kind of model thing as well. So, so, this is, so this is where it can have real practical implications. And you can do the same thing for a squat by manipulating any form of variable uh, there in terms of changing your hip angle or your knee angle or, or whatever you want to do. Do you want to add anything to that? And I, think, I think it's really nice to have, have that example to, to ground us with because I think it becomes really easy to become quite abstracted from um, the reality with these frameworks and often it's a bit of a dense um, language to navigate through so yeah I really like that um, idea of how predictive processing can kind of absorb some of the things that we um, are already practicing as physios and it, it kind of offers an opportunity to not only link things together, but hopefully set it within a, a deeper understanding of, of why that might be successful. And I like it in terms of, you mentioned earlier about distraction. And I think in some ways, the use of distractions become this sort of, um, you know, whether we're doing it within physiotherapy or whether we're doing it sort of experimentally within sort of um, virtual reality and, and, and things like that. I think what predictive processing offers is this idea that actually distraction isn't necessarily the sort of um, feel, feel all and end all of, of what we're trying to create here. What we're, what we're trying to look at is understanding how when somebody's experiencing pain, they tend to narrow the way in which they um, explore the world in order to protect themselves. But in so doing, they're creating a world that is wholly coupled with with painful experience and part of our role of, of, of physios is trying to introduce through action often this idea that we can start to broaden this narrow view and, and this sort of precision associated with with potential threat by providing other pieces of information that help to challenge that prediction and yeah this this constitutes the, the sort of psychological realm when we're talking about conducting rehabilitation in, in in people that might be highly anxious in particular circumstances as well as looking at, at changing the position of the body so people can uh, like your example of lying down and, and and doing abduction like can we can we alter where the body is in space in order to provide information that is not fitting in with the prediction of threat yeah, and I think I think that's so that's kind of captured within um, something which we all intuitively kind of do, which is symptom modification in in physiotherapy anyway. Where you find something that's painful, you do an intervention, and then you kind of reassess it. And it's classic in the shoulder with the shoulder symptom modification, where if somebody has pain with flexion, then you perhaps alter the position of the scapula or you get them to grip something to so put external load, which is meant to activate the rotator cuff better and the pain goes away. The same thing with various techniques in the back where you try and alter the perception of pain. But I think underpinning all of that is this kind of predictive processing. And we're not, I don't think we're actually fundamentally changing anything at the physical level often when we do that. We're just providing some form of different input or different context to change that person's pain experience. I think this is where we often get bogged down in physical therapy and in the biomedical model in general, where we think that the intervention we provide due to solely sort of physical responses or biological responses that we can see and measure, you know, it's due to increased strength or it's due to um, increased capacity in the tendon or it's due to better movement of the scapula or whatever. But underneath all of that, we, we have to accept that there's this, there's this multi-dimensional nature to it that we're we're trying to reconcile every millisecond or every every minute of the day. Yeah, I think there's there's, there's so much in that in the, in the sense that you know we we are we actively seek seek evidence as as, as people. We're trying we're trying to find out um, what's what's going on. We're we're, we're seeking to um, confirm our hypotheses. Often, not just as scientists, but as as sort of as people trying to work out what's happening. And so providing people with 
evidence, um, confirmatory or disconfirmatory, is, is part of, of, of how we go about our lives. But I think you're right in terms of that realisation of we we think we are controlling a certain aspect of somebody's care when actually I mean, in actual fact we're we are we're not we're part of that care but we're we're treating a complex entity which is then part of an even more complex entity in in, in the world and our interventions or your interventions are are part of something that could be interpreted wholly differently in different in different individuals um and in different sort of um sociocultural environments um and i think that's the other the other thing that sort of active inference and predictive processing perhaps offer is, is this sort of look at uh, bringing in this grounding in evolutionary biology where we um, consider experience in the modern day um, sort of as, as part of an involved being as, as humans. Most of our evolution has, has occurred in a completely different environment than we find ourselves in today. And I think sometimes that clash of the environment that we've essentially created for ourselves versus the environment that we adapted to over time means that our processes in order to make sense of experiences often have this fallout of mismatch. Um, and, and it's very difficult to reconcile, even though that adaptive process for most people works really well. What we're also seeing is this high like this massive increase in persistent symptoms in people whether it whether it be um related to allergy whether it be fatigue pain um itch bodily sensations that seem to persist um and i think that that speaks to the larger picture of where human beings have evolved over a long period of time in an environment that doesn't reflect the environment that we're in now and we're trying to make sense of that with a system that has been developed over um, a period of time outside of that environment um, and that's that's key I mean maybe just taking the pressure off a little bit or, or, or in terms of what is the role of the therapist here there certainly is a role but I also see healthcare as something that is much broader than it's currently thought of you know where is where is the healthcare in the design of our streets the design of our houses our understanding of how we commute to work how we work all of those things that pay into this picture of how our bodies should be acting and yet we're then we're treating people that sort of fall out of this system and then put them back into the system that may be causing the problem in the first place um it, it's i think it enables us the scope not only as practitioners to have real practical input at the individual level but i think it also enables to have this real big question as to we have the power more than ever before to have control over our environment the way that we design them and yet are we designing them for good or for bad i think i think that's a a, a sort of relevant question yeah wow okay that's um got real meta there real real quick Abby. I, I need to go and lie down now to to think about all of these things thanks for ruining my sleep tonight um i think actually i think that's a probably a good place to, to end that's there's so much to, to consider, but I think if we wrap up um, the predictive processing element of it, what's the future? What's the future with this? What's, how, what's going on in, in research land that you have access to or that you have your ear on the street to? What's, is, there, is there a lot happening in this space at the moment in, in sort of healthcare uh, or is it sort of still within these cognitive science fields or what's going on? Yes, I think, you know, for, for me, my experience of it at the moment is that it probably is situated predominantly within the cognitive sciences, much influence um, neuroscience, philosophy, um, and, and making sense of, largely speaking, in the realm of diagnosed clinical conditions, usually at the sort of relatively extreme end of the, the spectrum. So things like schizophrenia and autism, where it's a well... A pretty well-defined clinical condition. I think what what where we find ourselves in in pain is that we have a situation that is an experience that is ubiquitous and something that is part of normal life, um, and yet also this this sort of other element of pain that it that is wholly um, destructive and um, impacts people's lives negatively. And I think from a research perspective, uh, I can sort of speak to myself. I think things are moving in this direction within within pain. Um, where we're at, probably at the point at which, and this is some of the work that I'm doing at the moment, hoping to 
build descriptive models that adequately um, translate to hypotheses. And I'm working on a project at the moment that's doing that in phantom limb pain. Another relatively extreme incidence of, of um, pain, but my hope is that we can um, develop a model there that translates more broadly across pain experience. Um, in this circumstance, what I'm trying to do is take an example of where pain exists, where action is um, impossible. And, and, and so how does how does that relate to the experience of pain where action is restricted um, and, and, and how that how that breaks down? So I think where we're at is is still at the stage of building um, appropriate model models that allow this then to be tested. Um, so testable predictions in clinical populations. Um, and that that is moving forward. There's, there's work being done um, in, in interoception. Lisa Fieldman Barrett. Um, Mika Allen um, leading some of that, Sarah Garfinkel, um, Anna Seth, all, all doing work that's really trying to look at how to translate in, in bodily experiences using experimental paradigms. So it's, it's getting there. Um, I think it, it's it's still a work in progress, um, and particularly in pain, where we have an experience that's both um, every day, but also not in, in, in terms of the clinical um, persistence. So. So, yeah, to me, it's an exciting framework at the descriptive level for clinicians. I think it gets um, more exciting um, as we're, we're researching how that translates into underlying biopsychosocial mechanisms and then feeding that back into clinical um, practice is, is crucial. That's really exciting, actually. Um, I'll, I'll, point to, I'll point people to some of your work. So the Pain Unstuck paper and I'll sort of put this up for people, is a really good paper. This, um, this Bayesian learning one, which I've just been over, Bayesian learning models of pain, a call to action, fantastic paper. And then pain uh, statistical account, which you did with um, Lorimo and Mick, is a, is a really cool place, I think, for people to start. But yeah, so I'll sort of, there's obviously a lot of reading to be done. It's sort of hard to kind of, it's hard to encapsulate a lot of the stuff. There is some deep mathematics and physics underpinning all of this as well. But I think it's, if you can understand it from a sort of, framework qualitative perspective still think you can use it in your practice and have it underpin your clinical reasoning yeah well i just want to say thank you you've been very kind um to me so thank you and i think if there's if there are physios or other clinicians that are interested in learning a bit more i, th I think it's it's difficult to capture everything in a in a conversation so if, if there are there are follow-ups to this then by all, all means get in touch I think it's a conversation uh, worth having in the world of physio um, and the more that we talk about it I, th I think the the greater my understanding as to how this translates clinically will be and I, th I think that's key thank you for listening to this episode of the shoulder physio podcast with Abby Tabor in the time that has elapsed since August 2020, when we recorded this conversation, the content discussed is still accurate and up to date. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.